Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, this episode with Valerie Sly, the principal horn with the Alabama Symphony Orchestra, is it's a great episode. Uh, we talked a lot about auditions and how to be prepared for auditions and uh, how sometimes we need to take a few steps back to make sure that we uh, maybe pave over some bad habits that we've put into our playing with some better habits that are going to serve us in the long term and sort of how to manage all that. So it's a really great episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. Before we get into it, though, I just want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Have you ever set your trumpet on the ground, then picked up your phone, and then you actually dropped your phone on your trumpet and dented it? Because I have. <laughs> when that happens, Houghton Horns is here for you. At Houghton Horns, they do their repair work in-house, so you know you're getting one of their skilled craftsmen doing the work to bring your instrument back to 100%. They also do customizations, so if you're looking to customize your instrument for your specific needs, look no further than Houghton Horns. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. And welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, uh, I'm very excited to be interviewing Valerie Sly. She is the new principal horn with us in the Alabama Symphony Orchestra. Um, I've gotten the chance to spend some time with Valerie, uh, just getting to know her and having conversations about all sorts of different things. And um, I'm excited to have her in the orchestra, and just it seems like she's ready and excited to... Uh, do the best you can to sound great and be a part of the organization in all sorts of good ways. So for us, that's exciting. Uh, I actually met Valerie a number of years ago at a opera um, festival, summer festival that we were at together. And so this is pretty cool uh, from that to, to have, I guess, hired somebody that I would have known from a long time ago. So um, this is going to be cool for me to kind of, we, we've already dug into these a little bit. Uh, but it'll be cool because I know you're you're all going to really enjoy what she has to say. She said some things that really got me thinking, so I'm going to try to hopefully get her to say it again, and then we can kind of pick into it a little bit. So before we get started, I appreciate you coming over and uh, give me some of your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I mentioned to you, I'm sure that I have listened to many episodes of this podcast, so it's exciting to be on the other end of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I appreciate it. It's cool to... It's cool that this is like a thing that happens sometimes. I interview someone who listens to the podcast. Um, let's get started with your backstory. Take us as far back as whenever you got started, if you started with a different instrument or just kind of from the beginning and we'll take it from there. Yeah, so I guess I better go like really all the way back because my my mom is also a horn player. Um, Janine Gabri Sly, she taught at Michigan State for 25 years and is retired now. Um, so I think I've been around the horn since... You know, before I was born, um, my my dad's a music theory professor still at Michigan State. So I come from a really musical family. And um, 
you know, everyone that knows me also knows that I'm married to another horn player. So can't get away from it. Just completely <laughs> surrounded. Um, so yeah, it's it's something that I think has always been kind of a part of my life. Um, I did my undergrad at Oberlin Conservatory. Um, and then I actually studied, I, I started my master's at MSM in New York with Eric Ralski and um, wound up uh, leaving that program halfway through, which I'm sure we will get into. And then I ultimately finished my master's at Yale. Mm. And then you had started a doctorate in the middle of the pandemic, right? I did. I Yep, I started a pandemic DMA um, at CU Boulder with Mike Thornton. And I actually am, am still finishing it. Yeah, I think yeah. that's so cool that we have the ability to do that and that you still want to finish it and, and go through with that. Do you want to... Do you want to talk a little bit about leaving the program? As Was it under okay circumstances or was it like bad circumstances that you left your master's? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't anything really bad. I, I think I I went to New York um, and I, I had a great time there and, and I really learned a lot. I just sort of had this overwhelming sense that I was going to leave that program and not be ready to be like out there as a professional musician. Um and I, I just felt it, it was a bit of an odd situation because um, I was Eric's only student at MSM. He, of course, taught at Juilliard and Manus as well. Um, but I was the only one who was studying with him at MSM. And, and so I didn't really have a studio or um, like that kind of sort of connection with a lot of other horn players on a regular basis. Um, and so I think I felt just sort of felt really isolated. Um, and I just wasn't learning as much as I, I thought I needed to in a master's program. And I, I remember getting, you know, most of the way through the first year and just feeling like I wasn't really where I felt that I needed to be. And um, and I, I wasn't sure that another year there was going to pick up that slack. And so I thought maybe it would be best to just sort of start over somewhere else. Um, but I have to say, I mean, I, I loved studying with Eric. It really, it had nothing to do with, he was a great teacher and, and, um, I really enjoyed studying with him, but it just was not, it was not the right place for me at that time. Yeah. It's really interesting. I, I feel like through the things I've read about deliberate practice and, uh, structure and how we can get better, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes I, I get it in my head that it's totally possible to on your own reach whatever goal you want to do, but you're kind of speaking to there was something you were missing by not being in that environment. Do you want to speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think in the times that I've been out of school in like the gap between when I left MSM and went to Yale, for example, and even in the time after I graduated from Yale and was kind of taking auditions on my own, um, I don't think that I don't think I really put my finger on it at the time when I was in New York, but it's incredibly important to just be hearing your peers constantly. And I think that's one of the things that we get most out of being in a school situation that I personally will never take for granted again. Just the ability to hear like other people's audition prep, what they're doing, what's working, what, you know, what things sound like and and just have that in your ear all the time. And so, um, I yeah, I just I was sort of missing that a little bit at MSM, and and I don't think that I knew exactly at the time that that was what it was because you know, now looking back on myself, I can always say like, 
why didn't you go find that? You know, it's not a hard thing to recreate to go, you know, um, play mock auditions with people, put stuff together. And I think um, that's something that in the years past, I I have done a lot more. But at the time, I I just sort of had this sense that there was something that wasn't working. There was something that was kind of missing and I didn't really know what it was. Mm. And I, I think that's probably what it was. That's really interesting that you would sort of feel that, that lack almost. And instead of being like, well, maybe it'll get better. You were, you were thinking, well, some sort of change. Yeah. You were able to know. And then, well, then the other half of knowing that there needed to be a change too, was just saying you didn't feel like where you were, where you wanted to be. This is, I think something a lot of people feel, you know, is, well, am I sort of compared to where I need to be or where other people are? Like, how am I doing? And I think this can be healthy. This idea of using some sort of external thing to help you track progress towards a particular goal. But we also know comparison can be incredibly unhealthy. So how did you, can you take us and try to expand upon what you meant by, I wasn't as far along as I wanted to be? Does that make sense? Like, how did you know that? What criteria were you using to feel that way? Or was it sort of just a gut feeling? Um, I think... At the time, you know, listening to my own playing, I sort of recognized that, like, if I showed up to an audition, the committee would not, or or anyone listening to me would not necessarily get the sense that they would trust my playing. Mm. I I think I mean I I think I just I sort of had the sense that I just was not um, really competitive or sort of like trustworthy or reliable in that kind of way, in the way that you want somebody who you're going to be working with to be. Um, Yeah. Mm. It's just interesting because I feel like even acknowledging that that's something that you were, let's say, lacking, right? Like you were lacking the trustworthiness that, that would just be perceived when you played. It's almost like acknowledging that you are lacking that would be like one of the first steps towards getting it, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it's certainly the first step. And I mean, there are lots of smaller changes that I probably could have made to achieve that. Um, But I think like for better or worse, I've always been the type of person that's willing to just like throw everything out and start again when things are not working. Um, and so that was sort of my reaction to that situation as well, which was just like, this is not working the way that I want it to. Like, let's just scrap it and and start over. <laughs> I think that's an I think that's an incredibly valuable uh, skill, almost if you want to call it that. You know, like, oh, I haven't talked about it much on the podcast, but I'm, I'm I've been writing a book on like practicing and stuff, and I wrote like a 120 page version of a book on a Google document. And then I sent it around to some people for some feedback. And I got some feedback. And then I did some more research. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to rewrite this <laughs> book, you know? But to me, it wasn't like, I don't want to do that. To me, it was like, I have to do this. Like, I understand that what I did previously was good work, but I need some sort of like reset so I can almost build it back from the ground up again, you know? Like, I want to build it the right way based on what I know this time. So, to me, it's it's just a hard skill to do because starting over means starting over, you know? Yeah, it can be really frustrating. But I think, you know, one thing that I that I hear all the time when people are talking about like where we are in like 
uh, as a human species is there are all of these things that, you know, cars, for example, like we never would have built the infrastructure, you know, this way had we started with the technology that we have now. And so I feel like there are so many things and that's maybe like a very broad metaphor, but um, there are so many things that would just be better if you could just, if you could just scrap it and say like, let's try again from the beginning. Um, Cause sometimes building on, on something that only works 80% is only ever gonna work as well as, you know, that foundation allows it to. Um, and of course, with something like playing, like you can't unlearn how to play your instrument and completely start over. But I think you can take a step back and, and um, you know, wipe out some bad habits and, and things like that and, and start from, you know, a square two. And if, you know, at least if it's not going to be square one, um, and I think we all experience that from time to time, just when we take like a few weeks off, like you come back and some of those terrible habits you had have, you know, you've sort of swept the cobwebs and you can rebuild some good habits and it's really refreshing. Um, so I think, I think it can be really valuable sometimes, but it's definitely a, a frightening prospect. Yeah, this is awesome because I'm sort of in the throes of understanding it from like a like there are times where we need to certainly stretch ourselves, right? Like there's evidence for that. But I think that thought can get taken too far. And we don't always think about, well, yes, I should stretch myself, but when should I stretch myself? And then what should I be doing for the time that I'm not stretching myself? I was having a conversation with um, a trumpet player that I'm, I'm uh, sort of working with a little bit right now. And we're doing some of this sort of like going back to a little bit more basic stuff. And we're sort of checking, making sure that some of these boxes of healthy playing are there. And he was commenting, he's got a job now, and he was commenting that he almost feels like he can do it more now because there's sort of less pressure on, I got to get through all the things I'm doing in school. And if I don't figure it out by the end, I'm not going to figure it out. And so he was commenting that it it seems like it's harder to do this kind of thing when you're in school because it always feels like you need to be moving forward versus like taking a few steps back. But And also because you don't have even a little bit of security from employment where you might be able to say, obviously you want to be able to do your job. But um, so I'm curious, you were doing this when you didn't have employment. So what was that like stressful for you? Like the ambassador change kind of doing that, was it stressful for you? Or were you like, this is definitely, I have to do this. So there's really no choice. You know, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I think it definitely was more, more of the latter, like, I knew that it had to be done and and um and so I just sort of did it. Um I think I will whatever like doubts I have about things I will always outstubborn them and that's just sort of how I've gotten through a lot of things is that like no matter what um like difficulty I'm having surrounding things like, I just have this thing in me that's like, well, I will not let this tube of metal beat me. And sometimes that's not a great way to approach things. Sometimes it can be really unhealthy, but um, but that in some ways has been helpful for me as well to just like, I'm, you know, I refuse to to give up on this. I will not be bested by this inanimate object, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think at the time, like, I just couldn't stand the idea of not 
getting it. And so that, and I think that 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 feeling has carried me through a lot of times. Just that, you know, no matter how hard things were or no matter how much I was struggling, like I always just have this sense of like, I will, like I couldn't stand the idea of just like not getting there, getting to where I wanted. So, um, and that that's just a stubborn streak that, you know, in many ways is a problem, but in some ways it's yeah, helpful. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that tenacity, I think, you know, in the way you're describing it can also just manifest as like, I just, yeah, I didn't give up. I was paid, but I was patient with myself. Like, I was just like, I know I can figure this out. I think that's a necessary component of any kind of progress because a lot of these things just take time and you got to make it through that period of time where you're, especially with something like an embouchure change, your your face is just figuring out something new and it takes, you know, a, a second, just like, you know, the development of any motor pattern at all. Um, one interesting angle I want to take, you said earlier that, you know, it's best sometimes to just start over from a process where maybe it's going to take you 80% of the way. Sometimes it's best to just like start over and try to take what you learned from that and build something that will get you further. And then you were just talking about, I knew this was something that needed to happen. How did you know that this was something that was possibly taking you to 80%? How did you judge that? How did you know that this was something that you needed to address? Because mm -hmm. I think some people might be in this place where they're like, I'm struggling right now, but I'm going to keep going versus something needs to change. Like, it's almost like, how did you know that this was not something to stubborn your way through, you know? Yeah. Um, I think like in a, on some really technical levels, um, I had been having trouble with some specifically like low register stuff that I had not had trouble with before. And so that kind of led me to believe that there were there were some things going on with my actual embouchure that um, had changed and and were not really working. And I wasn't able to get like the jaw forward and things like that. like on on a very technical level, like there there were just some things that had not plagued me in the past that had started to creep up in my playing. Um, and I felt like I was not playing as naturally as I had for most of my undergrad. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think whenever, you hit a period of time where things are feeling harder than they have been in the past. That's a point where you have to question like what's going on. Um, and I'm sure that like, this is, you know, something that you think about a lot if you're, cause you, you do powerlifting or anybody who's, who's um, on any kind of like strength training program or anything like that. Sometimes you hit a point where um, like, you're just not able to make progress. And usually those are the, the points where, when you feel like you're backsliding even, those are the points where you have to make change um, to what you're doing and and um, get out of a pattern, I think. Yeah, I could, obviously, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I've had this experience in the gym and I've sort of developed a, a worldview of practicing an instrument from this idea where it's like, I was struggling with my deadlift and then I just spent like two years like trying to figure out how to deadlift better, more efficiently with better form. And at a certain point, it actually clicked a little bit. And I'm starting to, you know, at least have more success and whatnot with, with my deadlifting. And I, I think about this. So a leap I have made, and you can tell me if you agree with this. A leap I have made is, well, I'll ask the question. Do you think that people should only really address this when they kind of hit that plateau? Or do you think there are times, I mean, this is what 
teaching is, right? You're trying to give people information before they hit a plateau. But do you think that there are multiple different ways things can work? Or do you think that like some people are going to have to like think about these types of things no matter where they are in their development? So trying to get them in as soon as possible would help them not plateau later on. What's your take on that? That's a, yeah, that's a hard question to answer. I think there are some things that you can't necessarily anticipate happening. Um, I also um, am always very wary of um, messing with any thought process that's working because I think, you know, what we do is so dependent on having like real um, emotional control and thought control and, and, and maybe those are not the exact right words for it, but, but um, like the, you know, what the way that we think about things, um, the way we think about performing, the way we think about executing, how we're directing our attention has probably 95% to do with, with what we're doing. And, those thought processes can be interrupted so easily. And, you know, you read about this when you read about um, like sports psychology books on choking and things like that, when something goes awry in like the mental process. And and so I'm always very wary of putting those kinds of thoughts into my own head, into other people's heads. Um, Because I think sometimes like just the idea that something might happen is good enough to screw everything up. <laughs> and so so I think like sometimes, and I think that's probably one of the hardest things about, you know, I haven't done that much teaching um, in my life, certainly not with like high level players, but I, w- I think that probably one of the hardest things about teaching is knowing when to leave well enough alone and and when to intervene. Because some sometimes I think we have to be careful of of things like oh this could this could be a problem this could happen so let's you know tinker with it now so yeah I don't know if I know the answer to that question I don't think there is an official answer you know <laughs> I'm just curious for people's take on it because I th- I think about this all the time you know like le- we could leave well enough alone and it could all seem fine, but then that thought process may, a year later, hit them into a plateau where then not only, kind of like what you're describing, like not only do they have to deal with the plateau, but they have to deal with the mental fallout of the plateau as well, which can be devastating to, to in whatever to whatever degree, you know, if it's like, oh, my plateau is I have to redo my embouchure, you know what right. I mean? Like, that can be hard to deal with. So I think it's at least a question worth asking whether or not there's an official answer, you know? Yeah, I think maybe maybe there's a, a happy medium where you can learn to identify some of these things early before they become a real problem. Um, or, you know, if something even like once or twice just isn't working as easily for somebody as it has been in the past, I think figuring out how to... I, I think one of the most valuable things for me has been... Um, figuring out how to like s- stop a triggering process in its, tr- you know, I don't, when something's not working, being able to go, how do I get very quickly back to healthy playing? Um, and, and what are some of those like thoughts or, or triggers that I can use to 
to recenter and like refine healthy playing very quickly. And I think that's something that I've gotten a lot better at over the years. Um, and something that I think about a lot because everyone's going to go off the rails a little bit sometimes. And I think one of the most important things, especially when you're in a position like you're in school or you're in a job where, you know, you spend many hours a day in rehearsals where things just, you just have to be able to do things. Um, being able to um, get yourself back to a place where where things are, are working properly, um, I think has been really valuable for me. It took me a long time to learn. Yeah, I feel like I'm sort of learning this at the same at a similar time. Really coming to like, first you got to find healthy playing, right? That's the first step. Like, if you don't know what it is, you can't find your way back to it. So, that's the majority of the struggle for most people for a long time is just beginning to have a relationship with. If I do these things and it sounds and feels like this, I can rest assured that it's pretty close to or healthy playing. But then, yeah, like, how do you get back on track? And, like, that is totally mental. It's 100% mental. Like, what are you focused on? You know, I've I've done all this um, researching. I mean, it's not a ton, but I've listened to some, you know, Andrew Huberman podcasts and stuff on neuroplasticity. And it seems like it has, your ability to change your brain has everything to do with your ability to focus on something. It seems like there's a pretty a direct line between that. And so... Yeah, I'm really fascinated with this as well. And I've come up with my own and I'm constantly thinking about it and refining it. I'm sure you are as well because it seems like, it's almost like if I find that thing, it's like, oh, I solved the equation. It's like everything's easier now. But then it doesn't seem to stick around like forever, you know? I don't know. That's just like random thought. that I, I also agree with you on that. Yeah, I think for me, it's most of the time making sure that I'm first and foremost serving the music and th thinking about the music, thinking about that my ear is on my bell and and the sound in the room and the way that I'm, you know, interacting with my colleagues and, and what's going on outside of me that um, and I guess you would call that like an extremely external focus. And I think this this is something that we've talked about a little bit is was where your attention is. Um, and for me, the more I can get my attention away from any specific, you know, muscle or or um, action that I'm performing and just out into the room, the easier it is for me to get get back to healthy playing. Yeah. To come really come from sound. Yeah, I think this is. I agree. I, I think, you know, getting it to the sound. It's so abstract, though. You know, like building a relationship with how to listen for certain aspects or how to try to project certain aspects of your sound. I find this to be very difficult to communicate. Sometimes, you know, do you, have you found any ways? At least the way that. How do you? Well, we'll start with like. How do you think about that? Like when you're listening into the room or you're listening to your bell, like. Are there certain things that you are listening for or is it sort of just like a feel thing? The reason I'm interested is there's these in deliberate or in deliberate practice, there's our mental representations and I'm trying to get some people to like verbalize, you know, like what it is that we do. Because sometimes we're just like, I know what it is, but I bet some people could really benefit if you had the ability to even sort of verbalize, they might be able to try that out on their own playing. So if possible, I'd be curious. Um, yeah, that's, that is a really 
hard question to answer. Um, I think that I'm looking for the sound to sound easy, mm -hmm. to sound um, free and and resonant, and and all of the you know those buzzwords that we've heard forever and ever from our teachers. Um, and I guess part of it too is that I'm looking for um, the like ratio between the amount of work that I feel that I'm doing um, to to the sound that I'm putting out to be very low. So like I I want and I I mean you know you would call that um, why am I blanking on words here um, efficiency yeah right. <laughs> you would call that efficiency and so I I don't know I think I don't know if I have anything to offer beyond a lot of the stuff that we've been told forever and ever but I mean I think um like an just like a feeling of ease and um that the work that I'm putting in is proportionally low to what I'm getting out that I'm not fighting with the instrument um because that's one of those things we can get into too where you feel like you're like within this little like battle with your horn and I feel like there is a place when you have some really healthy playing going on where you feel that you guys are working together to do, you know, and you're you're pushing into the horn and it's pushing back into you, and and there's a symbiosis there and um and a balance and and I think unfortunately that may be one of those things that the only way to really find what that feels like is just to do it a lot. Totally, yeah. The reason I'm interested in this is to to use let's say efficient as an example with the definition of efficient being that the work to sound ratio is low or that I'm not working or it doesn't, you know, it feels, I, you know, balanced, I think is a good word here. So that's not necessarily easy, but that it's balanced. The reason I like this conversation is because I think it could help, let's say somebody else is like, well, I want to sound like Valerie and what she values is efficiency. And so basically the, the, the way to, for people to incorporate what you do is then to say, well, where can I play? Like what kinds of exercises? How would I quote back up like we were talking about? So that the things I'm doing are easy. The things I'm doing are balanced or I'm, the things I'm doing are efficient. Yeah. And even if it's on basic long tones, like if you start there, you are starting to build this sort of foundation of that's my uh, approach. And then you also then get to ask the question, well, do I even know how to create that? Do I even know what that is? And if the answer is no, well, then now you have specific questions for like if someone reached out to you or other teachers, you know, and they would be like, well, I want more of this efficiency, but I don't know how to create it. And now you have like a really direct path to follow rather than sort of this open-ended does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. I think also we have to be careful. This just popped into my head. Um, and so I'm going to go off on a little bit of a sidetrack really fast first. But um, I think we have to be careful sometimes with, with the word easy or or efficiency. Because I just remember in my undergrad, you know, um, I wanted to achieve like an ease of sound in like the high register. And for a long time, I felt like that meant that I shouldn't experience any resistance from the instrument and that I shouldn't have to really put very much air into it. And so I wound up just like pinching and, you know, all of the classic things because I really wanted to get this like, <clears throat> this sound that just sounded like it was just sort of, you know, coming out of zero effort. And so I think there's a difference between what 
you know, there's a, sometimes a disconnect between the sound that we want to hear and how we actually get there. Um, and so I think one of the things that I, I think about um, a lot is the idea of like playing with the horn and having, you know, the instrument really be a part of what I'm doing um, and really paying attention to the resistance that it's giving me and and working with it. Because sometimes you do, <coughs> excuse me, sometimes you do want to push into that resistance. You need to use it. And sometimes, sometimes you don't want it. But, um, but yeah, I, I remember being very confused for a long time uh, with this concept of ease of playing and how to achieve that um, and what that should feel like and things like that. Um, and I guess for me, like most most of my like favorite sort of like go-to exercises um, come from like breath attacks. I do so many breath attacks because I, I feel like that allows me to find what the horn is giving me mm-hmm. and and sort of allows me to feel like what the resistance is, different levels of resistance and how I can change my air to create different types of resistance in the horn and and things like that. And so that's what I, whenever I'm having a problem, that's what I always come back to is breath attacks. And and I think most of it is just to feel what what I'm getting from the instrument. Yeah. I, I, I just couldn't, I'm sort of like, entrenched in this kind of thing right now. Like the words we use matter a lot, I mm-hmm. think. And I think it is okay to try to describe things with words. We just need to be very precise, like you're saying, with the words. Because um, I, I, I've i said sometimes to students uh, in relationship to this, this idea that we want to have minimal effort, Right. I've tried to I've tried to frame it as we want the minimal amount of effort necessary to produce the desired result, right? So that's just going to change based on whatever it is we're trying to figure out how to do. And so I, I think this kind of conversation is very necessary because for that exact reason, you hear something, you know, like Tom Rolfe's. I love Tom Rolfe's playing. And when you listen to him, it's larger than life. And you're like, how could a trumpet player sound like this? He must be playing so loud. And he is playing very loud, he is. There's no way around that. But his articulation is also like incredibly crisp and like, you know, he's not afraid to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. And then also his sound is very, 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 very focused, you know? So I think it's like those two things can create this very larger than life feeling. But if you're listening to it and you're trying to say, well, how is he doing that? You might pick the wrong thing. Right. And then you're driving yourself away from the particular standard you want, which is, um, I think just such an important thing to at least consider, if not get some actual expert advice on <laughs> versus just trying to decide on your own. Yeah. Well, I think one of the one of the things that, that we have a tendency to do is stop describing once we hit like the first adjective. So yeah, you describe that trumpet sound. And I think like the more specific you can get the more options you're going to give yourself for achieving that, right? So like, yeah, I want an ease of sound, but how how much more specific can I be about like what that sound actually is? And I think part of that, it's like 50-50 a problem with our description and, you know, 50% of just not listening um, intentionally enough. And I think I... 
I wish that I had learned earlier how to listen well um, and how to really analyze what was happening in my playing or somebody else's playing well. Um, Because I think that's one of the like most important skills we have is, you know, you hear something that sounds really good and you just think to yourself, oh, that sounds really good or it sounds so big or it sounds so easy. And you don't continue to ask questions about why that is and how you can achieve that. And um, at CU in the past like year and a half, one of the most like, one of the things that my teacher there told me that was just like life-changing for me was, you know, we were working on a specific excerpt and and he said, you know, I, I know this might sound silly, but I think you should just go home and make make like a list of all the different tools that you have to intensify sound. You know, all you know, all of the different things you can do with your air, your articulation. Like just make a list of all of the different things that you can do. And I think that like you could apply this to any concept in your playing so that you can get really, really specific about like this is the result I'm trying to achieve. And these are all of the different ways that I could go about trying to get there. And then you just have this like menu of options to choose from and to try and to tinker with. And it also gets you thinking really specifically about the different things that we do in our playing. Um, and so that that was something that was incredibly helpful for me um, and that I still think about, you know, every day now. Yeah, this might be a nice segue into auditions themselves. Um, before we get into it, I, I wanted to ask you this forever ago on the interview, but we got talking about something else. Um, did you did you see yourself? Like, at what point did you decide you wanted to pursue a path of orchestral playing? Um, I think pretty early on, you know, playing just playing in orchestra was always one of my favorite things from the time that I was, you know, at Interlochen in high school. Um during the summers and and in undergrad. So I think that was that always felt like kind of the natural progression. Um, for horn, you know, for most brass instruments, that's where we find most of our best rep. Um, and I, I mean, I love chamber music, but there's just so much more for us to do in orchestra. And, um, and there's, I, you know, there's nothing like it sometimes. You know, you're playing a Strauss tone poem or a Mahler symphony or something. And I think we've all had those moments where we're sitting there going, you know, there's nothing like this. Um, and I think the brass section is one of the most powerful places to be seated in the orchestra to experience that. I mean, you just get this incredible sound um, all around you. And it's, to- I mean, it's totally addictive. I think most of us have experienced that. Yeah, I agree. That's definitely one of the reasons I was... I mean, there's a lot of reasons that I think don't have anything to do with the orchestra at all. (laughs) I wanted to be in one. But yeah, that feeling of like Great Gate at Kiev type situation, or Kiev, I should say, rather, because I have learned that that's how uh, Ukrainians say it. Um, But yeah, like something like that, there's just, you're just part of this huge, you know, organ-like type... uh, Thing, I totally agree. Um, do you? So, I, I want to bring back a previous part of the conversation about starting over because the audition process is one of these things where I actually think it can be to a, a bit of a detriment to always feel like you're going to start over. If you have a, a negative result, you can be like, "Well, what I did didn't work. I'm going to just try something completely different." 
and you never really use the process of auditioning to build something that works a little bit better each time. Like there will, in any process, there will be things that went well and things that we could probably adjust and that we would use each time we do it to gradually refine the process we're using. And so I'm curious, um, I don't know how open-ended I want to make this. So maybe we'll let's just start with like, what is your general approach? Like, how do you break things down? How do you bring forth in your playing what it is that you want to do musically? How do you make some of these decisions through listening and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, well, do, do you want me to get very specific about <laughs> yeah, my sorry. audition prep or or just my my sort of thoughts on auditions let's, let's or... start with let's start with building the mental representation so it's mm -hmm. arguably the most important part is trying to get a sense of what do i want to create so obviously this has probably been refined over many 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 auditions for you but if you were to say you know i'm going to do another one and you were learning brand new excerpts what do you think your approach would be after all this time to sort of get familiar with the musical content let's start there so I think my my first question when I look at a list is, you know, what are all these excerpts doing on here? And just to kind of look at each excerpt and and sort of make sure that I know like what the committee is going is looking for, what they're maybe not necessarily what they're looking for, but like what this excerpt is going to show about my playing. And that's not just like you know, can can you play this or not, but like what can it show about my playing? What do I have the opportunity to show through this excerpt about my playing? Um, and then, of course, like the musical picture of those just comes from listening, I think. It means so much listening. Um, sure. And then for me, like when I go through an audition prep process, there's just like so much recording. I mean, I start... So the, the first thing I do, this, this is what I've sort of landed on after you know, however many auditions. This is what I've I've done in the last few years, basically, is the first thing I do when I get the list is record the list without practicing everything just to get like a baseline. Like, this is where I am right now. And then, because for me, um, you know, there's too much like emotional attachment and reaction to my playing to really be objective about how things actually sound. So I can't, you know, if if I'm a person who does the like one, twos, and threes, I assign numbers as, where they are. I actually have a fourth category, but um, but I can't assign those if I don't hear myself playing them because otherwise it's just going to be like, I hate this excerpt. It's a three or this one's really uncomfortable. It's also... And then, you know, I get to the end of it and I'm like, why do I have so many threes? <laughs> because, you know, because we have so many. And so, um, so I have to like, I have to record. I take two or three days and I record the list all the way down from the beginning, unless there's something that, you know, I've never seen before and, you know, have just like totally can't play, then I'll take a couple, like maybe a couple days on that. But, but yeah, I want to hear where I'm starting from and assign like objective categories to them. And then, like I said, I have a fourth category and the fourth category is excerpts that actually really aren't that bad and are probably like ones or twos, but that I have some kind of like emotional issue with. Mm. And I see it on a list and I just go like, oh, I don't want to do that. Every Like a Ravel Pavan would be an example of one of those. And Ravel Piano, everything Ravel ever wrote, basically. <laughs> one of those <laughs> excerpts. Um, but like Ravel Piano, like I've never actually had a problem in an audition with Ravel Piano Concerto, 
but and I'm sure many uh horn players can relate to this. Like I see it on a list and I'm just like, oh why? I don't want to do that. And so those excerpts, um, they get a special category where I feel like I have to come at them in a slightly different way because actually they're not that bad, but like I just feel terrible about them. Mm. I like that. This is very, it's kind of similar to how I think about doing it. You would pick these categories and the categories is just whatever you want them to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also try to split them up in terms of length. So ones that are super long, I might do a few fewer repetitions because I'll end up assigning like, repet- you know how I see. I do. So I'll end up signing repetitions for everything. But I really like that piece of recording. Like I would think I would not want to record the whole thing because like I want to maximize the good repetitions. But like, you know, at least one repetition that may be suboptimal is not going to like ingrain any bad habits. But what you learn from it is probably more than the value of what you learn from it probably far outweighs, you know, ingraining any bad negative, uh, I guess, association with it. And then, yeah, you have some objective evidence of where you would place these things. I like that a lot. Yeah. I also think that just recording a lot, even when you're not remotely ready to record, at least for me, really helps me like um, just get so used to the recording process that it's not a big thing anymore. Um, Because I know in the past and and for a lot of people like actually sitting down to record anything is like this big deal and then you have to go listen to it and it's horrible and you hate everything that you played and and i think that like if you are doing that like when i'm in an audition like prep process honestly like most days the first thing i do like whenever whatever excerpt i'm supposed to be working on that day the first thing i do is record it because I find it so much more efficient to just listen back and and listen like immediately to what needs to be worked on. And so um, there's this like objectivity that sort of gets removed from from the equation and or excuse me, subjectivity yeah, that yeah. that gets removed from the equation um, when you when you immediately are just hearing what it sounds like all the time. Um, that I find really helpful. And it's always interesting to me because my, especially in the beginning when I first record the list, like my experience of the list is almost always really um, different from my experience listening to it. Like there'll be some excerpts where I always think like, oh, this is fine, that went fine. And then I listen and it sounds terrible. And then there are always excerpts that I think like that was awful. And you listen and you're like, actually that wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's always very striking to me how different what I'm hearing is from what I experience when I first do it. And I think it's a great reminder as well when you like first dive into an audition process that like things are not always what they seem and that you do have to find that emotional attachment from the excerpts, which for me is really, really hard to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like for me, recording is, I'm one of those people where recording has been difficult I've had a semi-regular, once I started posting on social media and stuff like that, I've had a semi-regular practice of recording myself built in. Um, But even recently, I started to experiment with, well, you know, because I work with like, you know, deciding how many repetitions, but what if I just assigned specific repetitions that I would record? And then it wouldn't, I wouldn't even have to choose. Like, it wouldn't be like, do I feel like recording this or not? It would be like, I'm supposed to do this. 
And it was way easier. It was actually shocking, not only how much easier it was, but how I started to look forward to, oh, I'm actually going to find out what I sound like so I can actually have productive practice. It it would, it kind of like took out that initial, I don't want to enter into this, <laughs> this right. practice of recording. Um, and so, yeah, it, it makes total sense to me that the structure you set up was just to remove that like barrier of, I don't like, giving myself the choice almost. You're just like, well, this is how I'm going to do it. Right. Yeah, it's very... I, I find it like... um, very freeing in some ways to just like... Like, I don't really have to think about what I might need to work on in this excerpt because the recording is going to tell me. And then I guess as the process goes along, what I'm really looking for um, as you get closer and closer to the audition is that what my like my impression of what is coming out of my bell while I'm playing gets closer and closer to what I hear on the recording because usually when we start an audition process it's wild how different they are and you know I always have these moments where I'm like how can I even play the horn if this is what I think I sound like and it's just like so far from from what I actually sound like and so I think the biggest thing that I'm looking for as the process goes along is that those two things get closer and closer together until I get to the point where I know where, that like what I'm hearing from myself is really true. And I, and I find that always to be a really interesting process. And so I think it's, for me, it's about checking that like what I think is coming across is actually what is coming across. And that's for me when I feel like I have ownership over what I'm playing. Yeah, I think this is so cool. I I can totally see how me lacking this is why I would feel like I sound, I'm, I feel like I'm sounding pretty good. Then I would go take an audition and not make it out of the first round, which has been my, been the case uh, a lot is it's just like, oh, I may think certain things are happening and it may not even be that they do or don't like my interpretation. There just may be certain things that, you know, I'm somewhat unaware of. So I feel that that's definitely been lacking in my own preparation process for whatever reason, right? Like I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not beating myself up about it. But I just think there's no, beyond a teacher, like a teacher is your best form of getting feedback, especially when you're first starting out. It just speeds up the process so much. But then beyond that, especially when you're you know, at your level, like essentially the recorder is, yeah, it's basically like, am I doing what I think I'm doing? So that when I do that in the audition, I'm doing what I want to be doing right. in the audition. Um, I'd love for you to speak about the risk-taking thing a little bit. I think this is so fascinating the way you describe this and I, I want everybody to be able to hear it. Yeah. So this was something that um, in my my recent time at CU um, that also Mike Thornton really, really helped me with. This is like the other the other sort of like mind-blowing thing that that I think about all the time still um, from from somebody who is just a, a phenomenal teacher. Um, but you know, we, when we're prepping an audition or a recital or, or anything like that, I think one of the things that we hear the most from peers and teachers and everyone is, oh, you know, you really need to get out there and take some risks. And I think we're so used to hearing it. At least I was so used to hearing it, but not really understanding like what that means. Like, what do you mean take some risks? Like you want me to go out there and play like in a way that I can't control, like I should go and play louder or softer than I have control over or faster or whatever. Like, I'm not going to do that. That sounds like a terrible idea. 
And so I feel like one day I just got really fed up and was in a lesson and was like, what the hell does this mean? And so we we sort of wound up having this this really great conversation about what people exactly are looking for when they tell you that they want you to take risks on stage. And um, I guess where I've sort of arrived um, from having like various conversations with people is that it's actually like, it's, it's actually about intentionality and whether or not like you have an incredibly clear picture of what you want to say and then committing 100% to doing that. And, and that's a scary thing because these pieces of music that we've, that we play, they've been played a thousand times before. I mean, they've been around for hundreds of years. A million horn players have played them. Why would my thoughts on Chike 5 be significant in any way? And so to stand up in front of all your peers when you're doing mock auditions or or whatever and to say like, this is what I think, this is how I think this excerpt should be played and commit to that 100% is more frightening than I think we um, we realize. And then I think the other part of that is that like, um, like we were talking about, I think it's about knowing you're playing incredibly well. So like, I think the example that I gave is there's this Houston Symphony recording of Dvorak 9 and um, I'm sure Bill Vermeulen is playing principal horn and um, in the horn solo in the last movement that goes up to the high B. <clears throat> I mean, he just like kisses the, I mean, it's just gorgeous. And um, and it sounds so ballsy, right? Because it's like, it's he just sort of touches it and it's so delicate. And I think to myself like, oh man, that takes that takes a lot. That's a big risk to do that. But that's not a risk for him. He knows he can do that. He knows his playing so well and he knows he can do that. And so I think like, for me, what I sort of landed on with auditions is that taking a risk in an audition means knowing my playing so well that that I know exactly what I can do in certain places. And then thinking things through in such a way that that I'm, you know, deciding to to really go for it on the in those places and and not in other places. So I think I think like the this idea of taking a risk, I think evokes this idea of spontaneity. But for me it's actually the complete opposite. It's about like meticulous planning. And knowing that like, this is what I can do with this excerpt. And this these are the moments that I can show off the special things in my playing that maybe somebody else can't do. And really taking advantage of those moments as much as possible and really committing to them. And so like, I feel like I sort of at, arrived at this place recently that's actually a really like fulfilling place to be where like no matter what happens on stage, like my measure of a successful performance is whether or not I played with like real commitment to what I wanted to do. And so like, you know, you leave the stage thinking like, that's what I wanted to say, even if I miss some notes along the way. And it's a like, it's been a real mindset change, I think, but um, but it's so much more gratifying and and fulfilling. So I don't know if that makes sense as a bit of a ramble, but that's I guess that's that's my how I've come to interpret this idea of taking risks is it's less of a a gamble 
and more of like a real commitment to your thoughts. Yeah, I I love like I said I'm I wanted you to make sure we said it on the podcast. I love this approach cuz I mean there's so many implications. One of them like you just said being let's say you go to an audition and you don't advance or you don't win. Well, if you walked out of there saying like I did the thing that I set out to do, it's like a success, you know? Basically, if you can get to an audition and you can play the way you want to play and it, and it goes, that's a successful audition. Obviously, we, we, we don't want to win. Yeah. And then if you don't and you learn something about how to do it next time, that's also a successful audition. But this gives such like a clear metric for where that bar is. Is like, I've made these decisions. And I feel like this is one of the reasons, you know, barber students... Uh, are successful and why I may not I may not have been as successful recently away from Barbara is because she would encourage us in this way. It's like I didn't think about it this way, but she's saying things like, "What's your plan? How much? Almost like how much are you going to crescendo here? Like, and then where's the peak going to be? And how much are you going to give? It's a very similar idea. I mean, not through the fr- the lens of taking a risk, but making all those decisions meticulously. And making them from a place of, I've listened to these recordings, it's informed. I'm not just doing whatever I feel like doing just so it can be different. That makes so much sense to me and something that, it almost makes me want to take another audition. Almost. (laughs) (laughs) Makes me want to take another audition just so I can try to put all these things together and see like, what's the difference in my, in my, the final result having... You know, that just that much, it just comes down to preparation, but it's like the preparation is so much deeper than I, I think I initially realized. I thought preparation was, I like, I know these excerpts. Right. And I can play the <laughs> trumpet pretty well. So like, why? Well, it should be fine. And I think I've like been relatively successful with that approach, but it's not taking me as, you know, as far as I may want to go in the long run, right? I've hit a plateau. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, I've had some success. That's cool. And I've played well at a lot of auditions. But there's certain jobs or certain auditions or it didn't. And it's like, well, maybe I've like, in terms of auditioning, it's hit a plateau and I got to go back and rethink. And these kinds of conversations are so eye-opening for me. And I hope that they are for my audience as well because it's just an important thing to consider. So um, I suppose we could shift gears from that place because I'm curious how this would play out in a job scenario where you have to be a bit more flexible than like your meticulous planning is is great and it's it's helpful to have that in the first rehearsal but if the conductor is asking for something different or if like you know like what we've talked about with the brass section and even if like people around you are thinking about it a little differently like how where where does the ability to be flexible come into the equation um, once you get the job and that becomes uh, important Yeah, I think, I mean, this is obviously still evolving for me because I haven't really been here for that long yet. But I think, um, I think you just have to be willing to let yourself be convinced by other people's ideas. And, and I think it again sort of comes back to listening. And, and that's something that I've, I've been thinking about a lot because this all ties in together, right? Like listening to your peers, listening to yourself, uh, your recordings. And, and when you're playing and, and, and how we listen and how we get better at listening, um, I think is, is something that's been really like at the front of my mind in the past few years. And so, um, yeah, I mean, this may, this may just be like the most obvious answer, but for, for me, it's just about having, you know, my ears open all the time and, and, um, trying to be as, 
specific and intentional as possible with how I'm listening to other people um, and noticing, you know, what they're doing. And yeah, I recognize how awkward this question is a little bit. <laughs> like, there's a little bit of awkwardness considering that you're, you know, that you are literally doing like the job with me. So I'm not trying to ask this in the context of figuring it out. I just think it's important that people who don't have jobs consider that, like, we can be uber prepared and that's great but like the developing at some point the flexibility the ability the ability to listen and to me that's basically the the end result of becoming very skilled at your instrument is you can dedicate less of your brain power towards making sure what you're doing is good rather you can get a little bit of that on autopilot and like you're talking about with a cue bringing yourself back so that it's like a little bit of my stuff is focused on me playing well but i have all of this ability to listen and i'm doing it i'm trying to do it all the time too i'm like constantly listening okay here's the bases doing that thing i'll play with them for a second you're just latching on to like whatever you can and in some situations it's easy and in other situations it's hard to know what to listen to. And so for me, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm the guy people will listen to, you know? Like it, it's it's very interesting how much it shifts when you're playing. And that's not something that you really could be prepared for until you're in this specific group and this specific hall and specific setups, all that kind yeah. of stuff. So yeah, I think that's probably the biggest learning curve too is um is being able to recognize when you are in the position where you can set up what other people are going to go with and when you really are not in that position and you just you just have to go with the flow and and um I think that's sort of an ongoing thing um but yeah I mean yeah it I mean it's it's something that I'm sure I will never stop thinking about but um but yeah I I I think the better, like, actually, I think because I've listened to this interview like three times, I think Barbara Butler in her interview with her, <laughs> with you, said we can never play better than our ears. And and I just remember hearing that because I've never, I've never unfortunately met her or worked with her myself. But I just remember hearing that and being like, damn, there's like a nugget of wisdom for you that I'm sure that I will take with me forever. Um, and it's really true. And so that's something that I've been thinking about so much is is how can how can you how can I become a better a better listener? It's so funny because like so much of that interview because people generally people don't have access to her. They heard that and they were like, "Oh my gosh!" Like every you know because yeah, she, she's just had like yeah, so many years of refining. But for someone like me, I was like, <laughs> like I've heard you know it's all really good stuff. But like you know, she also is like. She, I think she to some degree knows that like this is a true statement, whether you understand it yet or not. And right. I feel like there's so many of these things. What did I, something happened to me in work even this week that was Barbara, like there's something about what Barbara told me clicked. Uh, oh, it was like when I was learning about mental representations with deliberate practice. She used to say all the time, like my job as a teacher is to take my ears and to put them on you. Mm. And I never, I mean, I sort of understood in general what she was talking about, but in reality, she's saying, I'm trying to like take my refined understanding and make sure that's what you're hearing right. when doing it. And it's like, oh, like that's what teaching, you know, that's like, yeah. that's what the value of teaching is. It's not just like, oh, you have, you can tell me how to get better. It's like, you're refining what's in my brain so that that becomes what I'm listening for. That's so interesting. I, um, so I, the reason that I went to see you, um, besides, you know, 
wanting to do a DMA and having nothing else to do during the pandemic was because... So I had met Mike Thornton a number of years ago when I did Colorado College and and I had worked with him there and just, um, just really really clicked with him so much as a teacher. And so I I had always kind of wished that I had had the time to study with him more long-term. And so I guess, you know, going back to school after being out for a couple of years and and being on the audition trail sort of by myself, I, like, I went back um, with this perspective of like, I'm, this is the last chance that I'm going to have to like really be a student of somebody like, great for a long time. And so I kind of went to see you with like two main goals. The first one was basically that I was just going to do whatever he said and see what happened. And that was like my big experiment. And I wound up working super well. Um, um, And the second was I pretty quickly realized when I got there that I had never really met anyone who who heard as well as he did, who who could listen as well as he could and identify things in my playing as well as he could. And so like, you know, a couple weeks in, I just was like, if all I get out of this is like, I just want to leave this program and being and be able to hear as well as he does in my own playing and other people's playing. And I'm sure that that's not the case, but I certainly think that it's gotten a lot better. I think, you know, that that aspect of of my musicianship has improved so much just from like watching the way that he sort of dissects things and and um and so i've i've my brain has been on that a lot in the last couple of years yeah just like watching somebody be able to say like you know what it's you know what's happening it's this this part of the note is what and you're just like oh my gosh how did how do you know that i just <laughs> all i heard was it sounded bad yeah <laughs> I think, you know, I remember when I said with Barbara too, because I would say she's, you know, my at least in my life, that version of like, you know, just like the way she hears and is pretty amazing. And I, I wouldn't remember one of the things that frustrated me about working with her is I would play something and I would not I, I was like, I can't figure this out. I can't figure out like how to do this or how to do that. She's like, Oh, it's this. And then not only did she have a solution, which is amazing, but it was like I feel like I could have thought of that. <laughs> you know, it seems so obvious, but of course it wasn't, right? It wasn't, it's obvious to me now or even became obvious after she said it, but it was like, I never would have thought of, like you said, thought of that. Yeah. But not, yeah, not only did she think of it, but it was so simple and so obvious. And I just love those kinds of solutions where it kind of goes back to this basic, like almost always those solutions were way more basic than I thought they were going to be. It's just had a, such a specific application. Yeah, I've experienced that many times. <laughs> Actually, we we used to joke about it a lot in the studio. I shouldn't like throw everybody who's still there under the bus, but we like we you know we'd get together sometimes, and it was just this running joke of things that were like, yeah. So I went in there with this thing that's been plaguing me for ten years, and took him five minutes to figure it out. And you're just like, Ugh. yeah, <laughs> so frustrating. I'm sure that, you know, many people have that experience with many different teachers, but I think there's something really um, incredible at, about finding a teacher who just, the way they think about the instrument, the way they think about music just makes so much so much sense for you personally. And to to find a teacher that you really, really click with and it's, it's such a personal thing. And um, I think that's like, if there's like one argument that, 
like I could make for taking time out of school between degrees, which I did. It's that you, I feel like you get, you have so much more time to develop an understanding of like what you need from another person, what you need from a teacher. Um, And so I think that like, that was incredibly valuable to me. And I think also, you know, you go through your undergrad and and this is the only experience you've ever had. And maybe you go straight into your master's like I did. And um, you just like don't have an understanding of of all of the things that you have at your fingertips in school. And so coming back to school after you've been out, after you've been doing, like trying to do it on your own, um, you know, I think you just go in with this sense of like, I'm going to milk this for everything it has to offer me. Um, that I really wish that I had, you know, had that drive earlier on in like my undergrad and things like that. Because I think we just sort of miss that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's like, I wish I was this person right now who like wants to know the answer to everything when I had opportunities to ask. Yeah. You know, I went back and visited my undergrad teacher, well, my undergrad in general, but my undergrad teacher in uh, February. And I sat in on a pedagogy class that he has. And I felt like I was, I mean, I shared certain, certainly shared some of my own thoughts, you know, but I felt like I was asking him almost more questions than the people that were in the pedagogy class. Cause I'm actually finally in a space where I want to know as opposed to then. And it's nobody's fault. It's just like, obviously you follow that path. You do that thing. But at 18, I just, I was just, oh, we'll play the trumpet, I guess. But now it's like, oh my gosh, you have all of these people who have so much experience surrounding you and you could just ask them any question that you want to ask them <laughs> and then you just don't. <laughs> That's at least <laughs> my take on it. So I, I could agree more. I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, do you have any sort of final, maybe things that you wanted to say that you didn't get to say or um, just sort of final thoughts that you feel like uh, something that's super important to you that you feel like... Uh, you wish you'd have known earlier that uh, other people hearing would be good for them to consider just because it made such a big difference in your life. Is there anything that you can think of that would be sort of for the end of this episode nice to end on? Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's not. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I think, I mean, we've covered so much. I think, I think maybe in my, you know, in my, undergrad years or in my like younger years, I I wish that I had maybe understood. Well, this is a hard question to answer because I think when you're young, if you do know how hard it's going to be, you're less likely to actually do it. So maybe that maybe that sort of youthful ignorance is, um, is beneficial. But um, yeah, I think that that um, I think just like the idea of making peace with like getting knocked down a lot, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like how we deal with nerves as well. Like you just have to do it so much that like, you're never going to stop getting nervous, but you do get to a point where like the nerves are like a familiar friend, right? You're like, Oh, this feeling again. All right. Well, I know how this goes. And, um, and I think that's the case too with like, auditions that don't go so well with any, I don't want to say failures because I feel like that's, that word has a lot of connotations, but, um, but I think that like, if you can get in, get sort of like make peace with those sort of failures or failed auditions, 
or, you know, things that that didn't work out or didn't go your way and almost get to a point where you're like, well, I know how this goes and I've been here before and I will be here again and just sort of have like a like a casual friendship with with failure mm. and and just re- like recognize that it's just, you know, part of life and and that, you know, you'll you'll never be, you know, not disappointed and and those feelings are absolutely fine, but um but that it, you know, it's, it's just sort of part of the process. And I think I, I wish I understood that earlier because I think I must, I used to be much more affected by, by things like that. Um, and now I feel like, in general, I sort of give myself about twenty four hours to mope around and and feel sorry for myself. And then after that, it's, then it's time to learn from, from what happened and yeah. and and carry on. And and yeah, I think there's a there's a bounce back that that has to happen, but that also can be practiced. Yeah. Are you, sorry. Okay. Um, I totally agree. You know, like I wish, like failure is such a stupid word. Mm-hmm. And we talk about it, it's like, oh, failure is a part of success. It's just like, there's just really no such thing uh, I don't even say there's no such thing as failure because we we obviously can be very like black and white about things. It's like I either if I didn't win, I failed. But there's just so many reasons something can be valuable for us to do that whether or not the particular outcome that you would hope for worked out or not, there can all be all these second and third and fourth and fifth sort of layer reasons mm-hmm. why it could be valuable. And when you I feel like when you approach it that way. It takes a little bit of time, I've found, but you shift into actually I, that I want, like you said, I want that feeling. Like I want to fail because I'm going to learn. So a quick example, and then we'll, or a quick story from me, uh, I suppose, and then we'll cut it. We'll we'll, we'll stop. But you know, I, I I I've written a lot of blog posts, and I said I wrote this book, and I'll make a YouTube video or whatever. And often, a lot of times, I'll talk to Kathleen. I'm like, hey, can you like? check this out and see what you think. What I want her to say is, Ryan, you're the greatest writer I've ever <laughs> known. Like how, this is amazing, right? And then so it's like in my head, I what I want her to say is, this is great. This is perfect. There's nothing. But sometimes she's like, well, if you ask me for my opinion, I'll probably gonna give you my opinion. <laughs> and so uh, there's other times where she'll say like, okay, well, there's this. And what do you think about this? And she gives me feedback. And I like on the inside, I'm like, this sucks, you know? And I kind of almost like, especially, you know, years ago when I was first getting into this, I'd actually be like mad, not mad at her, but it kind of just like, ah, oh, you didn't, but I didn't understand that. I was like, oh, I'm expecting her to not say anything other than it's perfect. Flash or, or fast forward all this way. And I'm, I'm more in line with what you're describing where it's like, okay, I actually want you to tell me all the things that are wrong with this. Cause if I learn that I can just make something better next time, a better video, a better book, a better audition, whatever. And it's like, we should be actively seeking out those opportunities to, quote, fail. But really, it's just learning, I think. Totally agreed. People liked listening to you. And they thought you had really good things to say. And they wanted to say, you had great things to say. How would someone get in touch with you? Oh, they could get in touch with me on Facebook. Um, I'm also on Instagram. They could email me if they wanted to. Um, it's just ValerieSly at gmail.com. Um, I'm not the most uh, social media savvy person. I'm, to be honest, like a little social media phobic, but I'm trying to get better because, and this is a whole other conversation because I I totally recognize how important it is for 
our industry going forward. And so I'm, I'm trying to, trying to shed some of those fears, but um, yeah, those, those are the places you could reach out. Cool. Yeah. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do that at that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings whatsoever, I'd appreciate it if you gave a rating and a review on iTunes and don't forget to share this on social media so that other people could find it. Valerie, thank you again for your time. It's wonderful to get to know you a little bit more. And uh, I feel like I learned even you know more from this conversation. Uh, so I'm grateful and I'm, I'm sure my audience as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. If you're interested in working with Brandon, check him out at epiphanyrecordingstudio.com. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing. And we'll see you next time.